0: We're in Matthew chapter 5. you want to turn to Matthew chapter 5, if you haven't already. Uh, we are uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount right now, and it's, it's a mini-series part of a larger series we're doing. The larger series is Written So That You May Believe. Now, one thing I want to say is, as we look at the Scriptures uh, today, as we look at the Scriptures uh, in the coming months and as we've gone through this series, um, one of the things that, that is true is there's, there's a lot packed in here. And that means there's a lot to unpack. And, and what I wanted to, to let you know today, and I, I, something I learned uh, or heard at a, at a conference about uh, prophecy, about uh, the prophecy in the scriptures, so there's a lot of prophecy, There's a lot to unpack. And one of the speaker's teachers, he said, listen, what we're trying to accomplish here, what we're trying to give you are the broad strokes. If you think about a painter, an artist, right, they'll start on a canvas and they'll They'll block out the mountains and where the, the the features are going to be, and they'll then they'll start adding more detail until it's pristine and a beautiful uh, scenery, right? So for us, as we go through this passage and go through these passages of scripture, we need to understand we are unpacking it uh, broadly. We're making some broad strokes and and some more smaller strokes. but our encouragement to you would be uh, as you go home and as you study it, as you have your small group, as you have further conversations, my hope and my goal for you would be, that you would you would start adding those smaller details and let God teach you in those smaller ways uh, to make this puzzle come uh, to life or this picture come uh, to vibrant life. So we are looking at some broad strokes here as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we could easily spend uh, our entire time in one sermon on one or two verses, but we are looking at verses 17 through 26 today. Again, uh, we're kind of in a th- uh, we have a theme and sub theme going on. Right, the theme is written so you might believe. And the broad strokes of the Gospels is this, that, that what was written down, what was recorded, was written by God for us. It was written so that you would see and know that Jesus is the Messiah and that you would believe in his name, and that by believing in his name, you would have life in his name. That's the broad stroke. The Scriptures reveal Jesus as the Messiah, and they point to him, and they, they, they demand that you believe. They, there's nothing else to do unless you want to reject that you would believe that he is the Messiah, and in believing, you would find true hope and true life. That's a broad stroke, right? A, a, a huge general theme for the entire Gospels. As we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it, it, gets, it gets in there too, a little, a little subcategory and a sub-theme as well. A sub-theme is, uh, is the Sermon on the Mount. But, but the theme really is here, as we look at it, the broad stroke of it is, what is it to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? What does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of of heaven. And, that, and that's the lens we really want to look through as we look at these broad strokes. Because we're going to be talking about divorce and remarriage. We're going to be talking about adultery. We're going to be talking about murder. But we're going to be talking about it pretty broadly because Jesus is wanting us to understand what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven when we talk about murder, or when we talk about adultery, or when we talk about divorce. And so we want to get that. We want to understand that. We don't want to fight over some of the minutiae and miss the point that there's something bigger going on here for you and I as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. All right? So uh, I'm going to pray one more time. It's just a lot of prayer. And we're going to read the scripture, Matthew 5, 17 through 26. Father, guide us now as we, as we humbly submit to your word. May our hearts be open and receptive and ready to receive it. God, our desire is to know you more, to make you known. And God, if there's, if there's a way in us of thinking or, or living or believing That's wrong. That's against you. God, challenge us in that way. Challenge our own idea of what righteousness looks like. That we might be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and have a righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 5, if you would read along with me. Verses 17 through 26. Jesus continuing on in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it is said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister, Uh, will be subject to the court. And whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly uh, with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. So today we're going to look at the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven. What, what is the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven? What does that look like? And so for you and I, as we, as we approach that, again, we ought to be looking at this through the lens that says, I, I want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. I, I want to participate as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. So, what does that look like as far as it pertains to righteousness? Righteousness means a purity, right? It's, it's, a, it's a right way of living, it, it should be something that is, is seen or can be seen. But it goes further than that. And there's a few points we're going to look at. Number one is this the righteousness of the kingdom, number one, it is fulfilled in Christ. It is fulfilled in Christ. Let's look at that text in Matthew 5, uh, 5, beginning at 17. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things have been accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. If we look at this text, we're, we're looking at Jesus saying, listen, some people say that I've come and, and I'm countering what the law in the Old Testament has said. And really, that's not the case. Jesus isn't countering what the law says or what the prophets attest to or what, what the stories of the Scripture say. In fact, Jesus uses stories of the Old Testament all the time. Jesus always uses prophecy of the Old Testament. And he say, what did he say? All of those things point to me. What he's saying is, those who are teachers of the law now have not interpreted them correctly or interpreted them for their own gain. So, no, I'm not going to get rid of the law and the prophets. I'm getting rid of what you think the law and the prophets is all about. Think about this when you you think about the Easter story and when when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus. Right? We talked about this and and all the prophetic events surrounding Easter. But when he's on the road to Emmaus, his own disciples, people that should have been around him and learned from him and knew better, he had to take the scriptures again and expound them for them right there. And and for some reason, they just didn't get it until Jesus finally made it clear to them that they all talk about him. And then it's like light bulb, right? It goes off like, oh, I get it. I understand this now. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. It's not what I thought it was. Does that ever happen to you? Things aren't quite as you thought they were. I, I try to go into things thinking like that. Like, I'll, I'll make this assumption. I might I might feel this way or or it might seem to me to be, to be this way, but I'm, and until I know, I'm not going to make any quick judgments about it. right? That, that's important. But So Jesus is not saying, I'm, I'm getting rid of it at all. The Luke account of this is in Luke 16. It says this, the law and the prophets were until John, and here's why. why Because they all pointed to John as a forerunner, right? the, the new Elijah coming to make, make a path in the desert. That's, that's Elijah, and Jesus says that was him. And since then, since then, what has been fulfilled, the good news of the kingdom of God has been proclaimed. So the prophets all point to the time of John the baptizer coming and him pointing to the Messiah as being a forerunner, right? John the baptizer is a forerunner. And then, then the Messiah comes on and fulfills all of the prophecies. So what is what is it? It's been fulfilled in the good news of the kingdom and, and it's been proclaimed. And what is proclaimed? Jesus Christ is proclaimed. He is the fulfillment and then it goes on, it says, and everyone is urgently invited to enter. That's the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. We're invited to enter. We're urgently invited to enter. It, here's what it says. Jesus is there like, hey, I'm here. I fulfilled it. It's like all your lives, you've been putting together a puzzle and every prophecy and every story was a part of that puzzle, a puzzle piece. And, and the closer you got and the more, the more the times and the signs lined up, you saw more clearly what was happening. And Jesus, it's like he's that cornerstone, that last corner piece. It's like, oh, and he put it in there. Oh, it makes sense now. Before, we, we kind of saw in parts, and now we see the puzzle piece in a big way. Jesus says, listen, i am not come to abolish and get rid of all those puzzle pieces. In fact, I'm part of that. All, the whole puzzle is built because of me and for me. And so the last piece is Jesus. And we see him. He says, I, I, I'm here to fulfill it. I'm in your presence to fulfill it right now. And he goes on in verse uh, 17 of Luke's 16 account. He says, it's easier, it's easier. You think, you think I want to abolish the law. You want think I want to erase the prophets and start something new. No, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter in the law to drop out. Do you think Jesus came to abolish the law? Apparently not. Apparently it's easier for heaven and earth to just stop even existing than for one stroke of a letter to drop off. In my commentaries, there's this, there's a, the smallest Greek letter is an i, iota, right, the smallest iota. We use that in terminology sometimes in talking back and forth. But it's, it's, it also talks about the smallest stroke. It's not only the letter, but it's also like, like, when you and I write a C, right, there's your C, I'm backwards, this way, it can easily become a G by just doing this, right? There's our G, that smallest stroke. Or if you take an O, right? Here's an O. It can easily become a Q. With just a little tiny stroke. He says, don't even think about it. Every little stroke, every, every mark, every T is crossed, every I is dotted. None of them is going away. In fact, every one of them points to me. Jesus is not erasing the law. He is fulfilling it. He even prayed when he prayed his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed to the Father. He said, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your what? Your word is truth. He's praying for us that we would be sanctified, set apart by God's truth. The New Testament wasn't written at that point. What is he saying? Father, by the law and the prophets, sanctify them by that. Let them continually, let it rise up in there that they would see and they would know who I am. Nowhere in the slightest hint is there a slightest hint that Jesus questioned the historicity or the accuracy of the Old Testament. Nowhere did he question that that it should go away. After all, everything pointed to him. But Jesus often questioned the religious leaders' interpretations of the Scriptures, but he never questions the Scriptures themselves. It is God's Word, and he used it often even to argue the points about himself with the leaders of the day. He, he used it all the time to argue and to challenge their thinking. But think about this, not even the religious leaders. When he went in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. And what did he reply back to Satan every time? This is the Word of God. Here's God's Word. He didn't, he didn't say, I've got something new to tell you, Satan. He went right back to the Word of God. And so he's challenging They're thinking with God's word, and and he wants them to see that there's something greater that's right in front of them, and that's Jesus himself. But what he exposed most often and challenged most often when he used God's word and presented them as as fulfilled in him, what what he challenged and what he said is it's a heart issue here. And we're going to see that theme through all of today, especially as we talk about the righteousness of the kingdom. It is a heart issue. It's not about the keeping of religious rules. It's about the motive behind it think about when Jesus was challenged, he said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's the greatest commandment. Love God. And he says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the pro- everything can be summed up in those two commands. And you think about it in a small way, you think the Ten Commandments, which is really a big way. The first four commands have to do with your relationship to God and how you love God. The last six have to do with your relationship with people and how you love and interact with people. And if we love, that fulfills the command here. Paul Paul actually said that as well in Romans 13. He says, don't owe anyone anything. So talking about our relationship with one another and the rules we would follow. Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up by this commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law, what Paul said. Love, it comes down to love. Now, we don't negate laws and rules, but we we look and say, what's the motive behind what we're doing? And we're going to see that here in a minute. What we need to understand is that that the the law is fulfilled in Christ and it's summed up as loving God and loving others. Number two, we look at the righteousness of the kingdom. Not only is it fulfilled in Christ, it's fulfilled in Christ because it couldn't be fulfilled in us. Number two is this, the righteousness of the kingdom surpasses the righteousness of man. The righteousness of the kingdom surpasses the righteousness of man. Man. Matthew 5, go back to our text there. Look at verse 19. Whoever breaks one of these, of the least of these commands, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now let's stop there and just think about this. But we do not, this is what was happening. When we take our righteousness into our own hands, man's righteousness does this. It modifies and it tries to weaken the law of God. It weakens it saying, well, we don't really need to do that. Well, we don't need to think that way. And it modifies it sometimes by putting heavy loads. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They would add rules, add traditions. And there'd be rules for rules for rules. If you broke that tradition of the Pharisee, it was considered a great grave sin. And it was never actually a rule by God. They modified it. We don't modify the law. We don't weaken the law. That's not what we're to do. We are to to teach the word of God. And Paul was describing this to the elders. I think in Ephesus is where it was in in Acts 20. And And he's talking there. He says, listen, it was my goal and my desire. I did not avoid declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. It wasn't like, hey, we're New Testament Christians now. We like the New Testament. Right? Maybe, maybe the New Testament Bible, you like this one, right? The New Testament one with Psalms and Proverbs. You guys have any of those? Those are great, right? And, and there's a lot of Psalms and Proverbs that point forward. But Paul didn't shrink back. He said, no, no, I, I teach the entire counsel of God. I'll, I'll give you it all, and it all points to Jesus Christ. Paul saw it in a new light. Paul had known it. He was, he was learned. He had known it, and he had embraced the traditions of men and the he embraced the righteousness of man. He said, no, that's not worth anything anymore. I'm counting the loss, all for the, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He, he is everything, and him is righteousness. He knew that. Paul said, hey, I, I want the whole counsel of God. See, greatness in the kingdom is not due to how much you give, like outwardly, oh, look how much I give, look how great I am, how successful you are, right? Your popularity or your reputation or, or how religious you look, that's not... What success in the kingdom of God is about, but it's instead measured by a believer's view of the word of God, and then it's shown in and through their life and in their teaching. A believer is not just someone that says, I'm going to keep these rules and check off the box. A believer is someone who says, I I want what God has given, I am going to embrace. What God has given, I'm going to learn to follow and obey with my heart, and I will teach that to others. I will not change it, I will not modify it. I will not weaken it. I will not make it a burden for others. I will teach the full counsel of God. I will live by the full counsel of God. Christian righteousness and obedience is set to surpass. It's meant to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. But it's meant to do that in type, in type, not in the amount. And that's the difference here. Jesus says, listen, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, here's what this can get into. There's this battle now Well, I'm better than you. Oh, no, she's better than me. Oh, no, it's like this race. Like, I need to do more. I I need to check off some more boxes and look good. I want to earn my merit badges, right? Christian life merit badges. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying your your righteousness needs, needs to surpass that of the Pharisees in the amount you're doing. They're already burdened. They look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders and say, I just can't measure up. So don't tell me to try to surpass them, but I can't. It's in type. The type of obedience. Why? Because the Pharisees' obedience was what? What was it? It was was, was legalistic. It was outward. It was just for show. It was for pomp and circumstance. And that's what they wanted was the pomp and the circumstance. That's what they wanted. Uh, Let's look at this. I want to look at uh, turn with me. Keep your finger here in Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 23. I'm going to breeze through some uh, things that that were said about Jesus, or said said by Jesus, I'm sorry, about the Pharisees. And so what we're going to do is, we're going to develop a picture here of what their righteousness looks like. So that when you and I look and say, ours needs to surpass this, we'd we'd ask the question, "What, what would it take to surpass that? What would it be to surpass that? Matthew 23, we'll begin in verse 1. Jesus spoke to the crowds and his disciples. He says, the scribes and Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it, but do not do what they do. Right? So, hey, they're they're teaching the word, but don't do what they do. So what do they do? Here's what they do, their righteousness. They don't practice what they teach. Verse four, they tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry. And then it goes on. They They aren't willing to lift a finger to help. In verse 5, they do everything to be seen by others. Are you catching on the righteousness that they have? Right? Go to verse 13. Scroll down there. They shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 15, they travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, they make him tri- twice the son of hell as they are. They, well, that's, that's, that's their righteousness. Okay. In verse 23, he says to them, Hey, you, you guys, you pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the more important matters of law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Those are parts of the law. Oh, no, we, we give a tenth. Don't worry about us. Jesus. Oh, yeah, you give a tenth, but you have zero mercy, you have zero justice, zero faithfulness. What about that? Remember, we modify the law, we weaken it. Verse 25, he, he goes I says, you, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, you are like whitewashed tombs. Your whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Are we getting the point here? Are we we seeing what Jesus would describe as the righteousness of the Pharisees? It's all self-righteousness. It's outward. Luke 16 points this out. He says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him, that's Jesus, and he told them, here's their righteousness, you are the ones who justify yourself in the sight of others. That's what self-righteousness is. We do whatever we can to justify ourselves in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts, he says. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. The righteousness of the Pharisees was to be highly esteemed by people. To be looked at as, as amazing, as powerful, as prestigious, as accomplished, as, as pure. In fact, if you looked at a Pharisee, they would, I think they would hope that you would think you could never even aspire to how great they are. That's why those heavy loads were tied down on these people's shoulders. What did Jesus say? But I tell you. You've heard that it was said, verse 21 of Matthew 5, you want to go back there? You've heard it said, don't murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But verse 22, but I tell you. but I, You're going to see this six other times here in this, in this, in this um, Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus saying, I tell you. I tell you, and, and when he says it, again, he's not saying, listen, what you, what you heard and thought was true and right is no longer true. I'm going to tell you what's true. What he's saying is, you've heard that it was said, don't murder. And it seems like you've been really good at just checking that box off and looking good at, I, I murdered, I didn't kill anybody. But Jesus says, but I tell you. And what is he going to tell us? It's more than that. He says, I tell you, everyone who is angry, With his brothers and or brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So if if you should be subject to judgment for killing somebody, you should be subject to judgment for being angry with somebody. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court, and whoever says "you fool" will be subject to hellfire. That's pretty damning, isn't it? What he's saying is is the kingdom, the righteousness of the kingdom, has to surpass the righteousness of men. Christian righteousness is greater than religious righteousness because it is deeper. So how does it differ, right? This is the question. How is it different than the Pharisees? It's deeper. It comes from the heart. True, faithful Christian righteousness comes from the heart. Pharisees were content with their formal obedience. We've done enough. We look good enough. But Jesus teaches us radical obedience. Obedience that is deeper than that. Obedience that is not accepted and credited to you as righteousness when done in any other way but through faith and trust from the heart because the Lord examines the heart. So, so righteousness in the kingdom is given and granted through faith that comes from the heart, not from what we look like outwardly to the world. It's a heart issue. And it being a heart issue helps us not trust in ourselves or our own accomplishments. It's not how, how many things you've checked off the box today. Paul wrote this. He says, we, we felt that we received a sentence of death. He was under persecution and pressure. He's like, I need to be better. I need to perform better. Here are my accomplishments. He said, no, I, we felt this pressure, this enormous pressure, that we couldn't do it on our own. Why was that good for us? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but God who raises from the dead. Paul knew. He's like, hey, I, we know that it's God that has the power. We know it's God that gives us righteousness, and it's God that does that through faith from a pure heart and pure motives. We have faith in his grace, the grace of God. James 4, 6 says this, he that is Jesus gives greater grace. He says, God resists the proud or the self-righteous, but he gives grace to the humble. Now this this should be a reminder to us when we start looking at the difference right the self righteousness of the pharisees and, and then we look at the, the deep righteousness of those who have trusted in christ through faith and received his grace there's a difference here because one's from the heart and it should make us go back and think about what alister uh, preached when he went through the beatitudes what what do, what makes somebody a citizen of the kingdom of heaven how is somebody blessed? And then what does it look like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven right out of that, right? What did it look like? Well, it meant that you were poor in spirit, right? Remember in, in verse 3 and following in chapter 5? That, that we would be poor in spirit, humble, knowing that we, we are nothing without God. That, that we would be mourning over the sin in our lives, that how, how wretched we really were. That we would be meek and empty and humble, and then we would be hungry for God's righteousness. Hungry. I don't know about you, but I think we need to get more hungry for God's righteousness. We hunger so much for a self-righteousness that, that we, we are fat and happy with that. We need to know how despairing we are and how desperate we are. And that should drive us to our knees and drive us to a place to beg God for mercy, to show us and give us his righteousness through faith, that we would hunger for that. And he promised it. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, what does the scripture say? you will be filled. Not not self-righteousness, but this is the righteousness of the kingdom that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And once we come to that, then what what does he do? What change does that make inside of us? Well, when, when we come to faith, our heart has been put out there for Jesus. And Jesus then changes our heart and gives us a heart of flesh and says, now from that heart, with the indwelled Holy Spirit, you will produce a fruit You will be different, not because you've accomplished all of these things. You will be different different because you had faith in me, and I will accomplish something through you. What do the Beatitudes go on to say? Blessed are the pure in what? Heart. It's a heart. Being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is a heart issue. It's about the heart. You're pure in heart. And you become peacemakers, and you become merciful. and, And even when you're all of that, guess what happens? People persecute you. If you looked like the rest of the world, they wouldn't care. You were self-righteous and right, like moving your way and pushing your way and, and, and kicking and screaming your way to the top. People would be like, good job. You, you do you. You're going to get there. As soon as you start to be meek and humble, that threatens everybody else's pride, and they persecute you. So let's, let's lead into that. Number three. We've talked about it a lot already, but number three is this. The righteousness of the kingdom is about the heart. Have you got the point yet? The righteousness of the kingdom is about the heart. Look at verse 22 of Matthew. This is what Jesus tells us. does says, you've, you've heard it said, not murder. Now, can we just stop for a minute? I told you broad strokes, right? Broad paint strokes. Here's a really broad brush, and it, it's put on our canvas, and it says, don't murder. Is there anyone that has a question about that? Okay, can we move on? Yeah, we don't, we don't murder, right? We don't kill people. Now, when you talk about murder, this is malice, a forethought. This is, I'm going to take someone's life. There's no justification for it all. It wasn't in, in defense of somebody else and their life. or their. It wasn't like that. Right? There, that is not murder. But murder is, I, I just, I don't like you. And, and, and he talks about the root of where murder comes from here in a minute, right? And he says it's about the heart, not just about the action. Applause for you for not murdering people. I hope you haven't murdered anybody. Thank you for not doing that. But Jesus goes on to say something bigger, huh? And, and we're applauding ourselves right now. We won't in about 30 seconds. About the heart. What does he say? I tell you. But I tell you. What was meant by that was certainly not to take a life. But it was deeper than that. It was a heart issue. He says, I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother or sister is subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. And whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire basically, here's what Jesus says. Murder, bad. Anger is equivalent to murder. And and it's interesting, because we think, well, maybe it has to be a certain level of anger. Well, there's three different levels right here. The first anger here is that, oh, I didn't like that. That didn't feel good. That didn't feel right. I don't want that. It's kind of the—I've said this before in in conversations with people— People think, well, I, when, when does it cross the line? It, it, and I'll read in a minute. It's it's a lot sooner than you think it is. I, I, by the way, I think there is a righteous anger we can have, but it's about that long of a time we can have it probably, because our ego starts to step in. So here's here's what I tend to use as a, as partial litmus test of this: as soon as I throw out the, how dare you? How dare you? I'm probably sinfully angry. Just angry. And that, that comes basically from most of our hearts as soon as we get irritated with somebody, right? Agitated with somebody. Angry, right? Or, or I throw an insult. I can't believe those guys. They, have, they don't know what they're talking about. Which implies, I do. What goes on in the end of the verse, whoever says, you fool or raka will be subject to hellfire. Here here's it goes, it escalates a little bit here. Here's what it says. Here's what that word means. You fool is that you empty or you, you empty-headed person or empty-minded, you you blockhead, you moron, you worthless pe- person. It goes so deep to say this. It's almost like calling somebody, you unregenerate person. Which basically, what, what they're saying is, you aren't, even, you aren't even going to heaven. You're going to hell. I'm, I am condemning you in my speech. Because we like to be judge. And then we like to be, what? Jury. And then what do we like to be? The executioner. You, you may not ever pull a trigger, but in your heart you did. But where, where we were all not murdered, we have murdered, all of us have murdered. All of us have committed murder, according to Jesus' words right here in Matthew 5. Anger. It's anger. He, he makes the point about the heart. It's in Matthew, Mark 7, he says, it's what, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. From within, out of people's hearts, what comes out of there, what comes out of our heart evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Those actions come out of a heart set towards those actions. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. But Scripture says, don't get angry. And, or, in your anger, do not sin. Psalm 37 says, refrain from anger and give up your rage. Do not be agitated, it can only bring harm. I, I don't know about you, but, but that righteous indignation I have, and I have it, I look at the world, I'm like, man, that is ungodly. God, God is grieving, God is angry, God is sad at that, so, so am I. I say that, I, I stand there, and I stand there, I think, rightly. Even when someone may, may say something against me or abuse my, me or my family in some way, I, I can still take that stand that that's, that's wrong. That's wrong. But where's the line here? Where's the line that we need to see? Proverbs 15 says, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict. So we, we can't be hot-tempered, but one slow to anger calms strife. So one of the remedies is to be slow to that anger. I, I think I get quick to anger, right? And when I get quick to anger, I usually spout something off, and that spout goes out as hate right? Anger insults, you fool. Now I've murdered somebody with my words, my heart. I, I I, There's a place for, for this righteousness, the righteous anger. I want to read a passage out of the, the D.A. Carson commentary I've been going through. Indeed, there is a place for burning with anger at sin and injustice. Our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but at offense to ourselves. In none of the cases in which Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. Now, pause there. It sure could have been, though. You know why? Because he's God. He is ego. Okay? But it wasn't. More telling yet was when he was unjustly arrested, unfairly tried, illegally beaten, contemptuously spit upon, crucified, crucified, uh, mocked And when, in fact, he, uh, he had every reason for his ego to be involved, then, as Peter says, he did not retaliate, and when he suffered, he made no threats. From his parched lips came forth, rather, those gracious words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Let us admit it, by and large, we are quick to be angry when we are personally affronted and offended. And we are slow to be angry when sin and injustice multiply in other areas. In these cases, we are more prone to philosophize. In fact, the problem is even more complicated than that. Here's what really struck me this week. Sometimes we get involved in a legitimate issue, and we discern, perhaps with accuracy, the right and the wrong of the matter. You're like, yeah, that's my camp. Right? I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I saw this. That is wrong. I, I am righteously indignant. I am angry over that sin. Perhaps with accuracy, the right and the wrong of the matter. However, I wanted to shut the book and not read anymore. However, in pushing the right side, husbands, you listening to this? Wives? Children? Parents? In pushing the right side, our own egos get so bound up with the issue that in our view, opponents are not only in the wrong, but now what? They're attacking us. And that's when we say, how dare you? When we react with anger, we may deceive ourselves into thinking that we are defending the truth and the right, when deep down we are more concerned with defending ourselves. Anyone want to say they haven't murdered anybody now? I mean, really, right? It's, that's what Jesus is saying. The, your righteousness of the kingdom, it has to surpass man-made righteousness. And he says it's not just a matter of checking off the boxes. It is a matter, indeed, of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. So what do we do? I, I, there's a parable Jesus spoke in Luke 18. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they looked down on everybody else. I, I told this parable a few weeks ago. Here, here it goes. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not greedy or unrighteous. I'm not adulterer or even like this here tax collector. In fact, I'm so different. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I get. Well, good job. Way to go for you. We have this, that's the same attitude Jesus is confronting, by the way, in murder. Look how good I am, and I can't believe how bad they are. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That needs to be our posture. That's what Jesus is looking for from the heart. It's God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's right here, heal me right here. And he says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen, we need, when we approach this topic of murder, we need to to, to avoid comparisons. We need to avoid judgments, especially judgments that would lead to personal ego getting involved. We need to stop and be slow to anger. Yes, we need to be angry at what God is angry at, but, but then we need to entrust it to the one who judges justly, and that is God. We need to seek mercy. We need to go to God and beat our chest and say, God, have mercy on me a sinner. And then we need to, in in receiving mercy, what does a citizen of the kingdom of heaven look like? They're merciful. We need to show mercy. Finally, the righteousness of the kingdom. The righteousness of the kingdom insists on the heart today. Today. It's a matter of the heart, and it's a matter of the heart today. Look at the last part of our passage, Matthew 5, 23 to 26. So what do we do with this? We've been angry in some way. Something's happened where I'm in wrong, right? So if you're offering your gift on the altar and there at the altar, you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave. Leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. When when is that to be done? Now. Now right now. like I remember it now. It needs to be done now. It's urgent. It insists on the heart today. and That's with your brother or sister. You're like, Brandon, that's, I get it. Brothers or sisters. But some people aren't my brothers or sisters. Well, let's look at what Jesus says next. Number 25. Or verse 25. Reach a settlement quickly with who? Your enemy. Your adversary. Not your brother or sister. With your enemy. And reach it when? Quickly. While you're on the way. The court before you even get there. You don't want judgment to come, you want to you wanna settle this matter right now. Or they'll hand you over to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you'll never get out of there until you paid the last penny. Here's what Jesus says: it's urgent. It's urgent with your brother or sister, it's urgent with your adversary to go and, and do what you can to pursue peace and pursue and promote peace. Romans 12 says this, Romans 12, 18. If possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Live at peace with everyone, whether it's your brother or your adversary. Uh, John Piper, in, in, in kind of reconciling these two, two passages, he says this. There's two helpful observations. That one, we are only responsible for what others hold against us when it is owning or owing uh, to a real sin or blunder on our part. It, it doesn't necessarily have to be sin. It has, what does say? If your brother, or you're there and, you realize they have something against you. Not, not like that, that you've sinned against them. That, no, they, they have something against you. There's something that's going on in a relationship, right? Number two, we are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but live with the pain if it does not succeed. In other words, we are not responsible to make reconciliation happen. We can't always, can we? We go to someone and say, man, I realize you're upset with me, I realized I must have done something. I, I do not want this kind of thing in our relationship. I would, I would love to be able to, to, to repent and say I'm sorry or clarify something I said. Please know that. And they might say, take a hike, see you later. I want nothing to do with you ever, never, ever. I want to be bitter. For-. Okay. Have you pursued? Have you done as best as it's possible with you and depends on you to live at peace? Yes. You've done what you can do. We, we, cannot, we cannot, because of the nature of the world, live at peace with everybody. But as much as it depends on you, I would say go above and beyond. We are, we are, he goes on, Piper says, we're responsible for grudges that someone has against us. We're responsible uh, possibly for anger someone has against us. We're po- responsible for potential bitterness against us or hostility against us. We could be responsible for that, and we need to ask those questions. Are we responsible for any anger? Sometimes we're not. Sometimes they just want to be angry, want to be bitter, want to be resentful. And there's, no, there's nothing we can do. We've tried, but if there is, we need to ask that question. And we need to do it when? Now. Today. Now. My last verse. Because it insists on the heart today, and here's why. When we talk about being citizens of the kingdom of heaven and having a righteousness of the kingdom of heaven, it is, it is something that will block our worship of God if we don't. Right? He said, you're bringing a gift to the altar what are you trying to do? What, is that, what does that symbolism mean? What are you doing? I'm here to worship. I'm here to, to act in, in faith to God. Today we're partaking of the Lord's Supper. We come in remembrance. We come, we come down as we walk down the aisle to receive. We come down saying, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. There should be no pride in that. There should be no ego in that. There should be just me in great humility, seeking a God who is more than merciful. More than merciful. And we come partake. But, but we know that if there's anger in our heart, if there's hatred in our heart, if there's malice in our heart, it will stop and block our relationship and worship of God. Psalm sixty six eighteen. 18. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I think there's so many times I'm like, God, I want to do this for you today. I want to do this for you next week. I, I, I have big plans. And God's sitting there looking at me like, I love you, Brandon. But listen, you've got a couple things to take care of first. I do that with my children, right? That's just fair. Like we have some things that they want to do, but I have a list of a couple things I want them to be obedient in. Let's, let's take care of those first, and then we'll proceed forward. God is ready to hear you. God is ready to receive you. God is ready to forgive you. But it's you and I saying, I, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on on me seek mercy be pure in heart be peacemakers and be merciful that's what it is to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and that's what it is to be of the righteousness of the kingdom of heaven i'm gonna ask our worship team to come back up and prepare for our time of responsive worship and we're going to participate and partake in the lord's supper here in a few minutes our children are going to be uh ushered back over and, and welcomed back in and as we do, I want to just give you some, some little instructions here. Um, you guys can grab your, your elements as you head on up. Uh, there's, they're double cupped, right? There's a, a cracker on the bottom cup and a, and a juice in the top cup. There are two of them. So when you come forward, if you grab both of those. Uh, but we're going to make this a time of, of silent reflection, right? The, the instruments we play in, but it's really a time for you to pray. I, I, would, I would seek to pray and ask God, God, is there some kind of ego in my heart, some kind of anger in my heart, some kind of murder in my heart that I need to take care of? But I need to humble myself and get over myself, and I need to seek you and, and embrace your mercy so that I can be in right relationship with you. Maybe you need to pray about a relationship, that there's, some, there's something blocking your relationship right now with God because of a, of a relationship problem you have with somebody else, a brother or sister, or maybe an adversary. Uh, if, you, if you're a believer, this is for you today, right? Uh, as we come partaking in the Lord's Supper, it is for those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. It's those who have cried out and said, Oh God, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And as we come down and, and partake of the elements, we are remembering mercy. We are remembering mercy over and over again. So we'd encourage you as you come down to come down in the middle aisles. And then as you grab the elements, if you go back in the outer aisles and come back to your seats, that would be great. Uh, as our kids come back in. Some of our kids have, have no idea really what this is about. They, they, they maybe not have uh, trusted Christ as Savior that. They don't understand that. They're getting there, but they're not. Uh, this is a great opportunity for them to observe. Or if you're here today and you're not a believer, you haven't come to faith in Christ, I'd ask that you not partake, that you observe, you watch. You watch the specialness of what this is and that, that really this is not about any self-righteousness. This is about the righteousness given by Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ alone. When we cry out to him saying, God, I'm a sinner. I need mercy. And that's what he does. As you get your elements and head back to your seats, we'll, we'll sing a song. Uh, if you'd hold on to those, don't, don't partake uh, yet. We'll, I'll come back up after our first song and I will read some scripture together. We'll pray together. We will partake of the elements together and then we'll close out uh, with a couple more songs, okay? Let's stand together, if you would, and pray. <clears throat> Father, we, we thank you so much for your great love for us. God, uh, sometimes I don't know how you put up with me. God, there's so much self-righteousness in my in my attitude at times, and, and ego in my attitude at times. God, I want you just to humble me. Help me get over myself and my own ways, Lord, and and seek you, God, a merciful God, because I am in need of mercy. God, I, we want to know the righteousness of the kingdom. And we know it comes from the heart. It comes from faith in the grace of God through a humble heart. So God, help us change our heart, the type of righteousness, not the amount of righteousness. God, we want to worship you from the heart. So today as we sing, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, may it be a reminder that, that faith is out of the heart in a gracious God who is merciful to forgive. And it's nothing that we have done on our own. We thank you and we offer this time and praise to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.